You're listening to a sermon from the preaching and teaching ministry of First Presbyterian Church, Covington, Tennessee. Our mission is to proclaim Christ's kingdom through word and deed. You can learn more about us at 1pc-covington.org or join us for worship at 403 South Main Street, Covington, Tennessee. You'll turn in your Bibles uh, to page 894. John chapter 7, verses 53 through chapter 8, verses 11. Let us pray. Gracious and almighty God, thank you, Lord, for what you alone know and you alone can reveal to us. I pray that you would do so today and help us, Lord, to serve you throughout all that we do today, tomorrow, and here on out. May your will be done in God's name. Amen. They each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The word of God for the people of God. Well, since... I made the decision to preach through John's gospel. Um, this text has been kind of looming because um, there are lots of textual questions about this passage. In your pew Bible, you will notice it's set off in double brackets and with a, a, a little note beforehand that most of the early, or none of the early manuscripts that we have contain this passage. There's a little note there that explains that the passage itself, when it does appear, um, hundreds of years after Scripture was written, um, that it or compiled, it's it's placed in different locations, which raises lots of questions about it. Um, none of our early fathers commenting on the passage mention it. That is, they're commenting on John, they're working through the book of John, and they go immediately from chapter 752 to 8.12. Um, and so we see that the earliest fathers didn't have it. Most scholars agree that this passage is not original to John. And I'm going to talk about this Wednesday night because it's a very helpful thing to instruct us about how we know Scripture and what's, you know, what's inspired, how we understand it. At the same time, and when I mention scholars, I don't mean like people who are skeptical of any of the Scripture. I mean really conservative evangelical scholars agree it's not original to John. 
And yet, at the same time, many of those same scholars believe it is very much an authentic account of a real event. I mean, just a, a couple of things that we note is it has all the details of eyewitness account with Jesus stooping and riding in the ground. Um, it it, it um, is also the story itself, though not attributed to John's gospel, is referenced by some very early um, leaders in the church in their writings. They make reference to it. It, it, it made its way um, into our scripture. Um, not that it, it wasn't, didn't belong there, but just it has an interesting history. And I'm going to talk about that some Wednesday. Um, but, the, but the question, and as I, as I looked at it and prayed, I, I'm convinced it does belong in Scripture. It is, it is God's Word to us. And we, we hear it, and it is going back in, to an authentic event. That said, hear this passage, this beautiful passage, that affirms everything else we know about Jesus. That adds nothing we would not know about Jesus if it wasn't in here. It reaffirms the message of the gospel. So they come in, the scribes and the Pharisees, as Jesus is teaching in the temple, and they bring a woman and say she has been caught in adultery. She's been caught in the very act of adultery. And Moses commanded that we ought to stone her. Um, They're referencing... Leviticus 20.10, which says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22.22, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. When we hear this, it sounds incredibly harsh to us. Um. But one of the things I think that points out for us is our cultural assumptions. Um, Interestingly, (laughs) let me just make a side note. The fact that this survived um, is rather amazing because for traditional cultures, this is taken as incredible leniency on on a serious sin. And so if, if you have this idea that the early church would just get rid of things that they disagreed with, the fact that this passage is here is proof that if they understood that it came from the apostles and was authentic of Scripture, they kept it even if it was something that they thought this is, this is getting lenient, more lenient than what we would think. Understand also capital punishment in Scripture was understood to be more of the range and the limit. Not, not so much a, here's the event, you, you administer this, but like our judges have a range of sentencing. And there's understandings of what would require going to that extent. I, I, I do think it is instructive for us to say, why, why does, you know, as we're seeing this, I think our temptation is to say, what, you would kill somebody, or what, the, somebody would take it that serious, but... As I said, that says more about our culture because in traditional cultures, surely they would say, you live in a society where the state would take driving without a seatbelt more serious than not keeping your vows to your husband or wife. Um, Jesus did not contradict the law. 
Jesus did not come in and say, it's not sin. If we read the Scripture, where we try to take Jesus and contrast him to any other parts of Scripture, we misunderstand the Scripture. We misunderstand our interpretation is wrong, and we misunderstand who Jesus is. Jesus said, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish but fulfill them. I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it's all accomplishment. And he goes on to say, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. As we, we move through this, understand grace is not God lowering his standard. Jesus' response accepts her guilt, and he confirms the law. Actually, he confirms the law beyond what the scribes and the Pharisees do. So Jesus and the law are not in conflict. Verse 6, we hear what the motive is. They said this to test them because they wanted to have something to accuse him with we know something is pretty fishy about this even before we hear the motive. As Don Carson comments, adultery is not something one does in splendid isolation. Where's the man? If she was caught in the very act, where is the man that the law condemns? It's completely unjust. Their desire is not to seek justice. Their desire is not to uh, take care of sin. Their desire is not to um, see that things are done right. Their desire is to put Jesus in a dilemma. And they're using this woman as just a pawn. They're using the life of this woman who, if Jesus says kill, they're ready to kill as just a tool to get at Jesus in order to bring him to the authorities to kill him. Because this is very much like the story of the people coming with a coin and saying, do we pay taxes or not? Because in this story, they were under Rome. And Roman law was, you, you have a lot of freedom in administering your law, but when it comes to capital punishment, you didn't have the right to do that. You had to come to Roman authorities, which is why the Jews who accused Jesus eventually had to take him to Pilate for crucifixion. For him to be killed wasn't something they could just do on their own. It had to be through Roman law. So if Jesus says you should stone her, then he is saying ignore Roman law and go ahead. However, if he says no, don't, He's contradicting the the Mosaic law that they've brought up. And they have her there, humiliated, exposed, using her in order to provide an accusation. If it was a question of the law, they could have simply left her, gone to Jesus and say, hey, you know, here's here's a tough issue, help us out. But they bring her in the midst of a crowd to let everyone know what has happened. And Jesus stoops down in the dirt, draws with his finger. (laughs) It's amazing how much speculation there is of what Jesus wrote. 
Uh, I mean, all sorts of people come up with ideas, and you might have heard several ideas. The thing is, we don't know because the passage doesn't tell us, which means it's not important. <laughs> if, if we wanted to, if you know, the author wanted us to know what Jesus had said, if that was crucial to understanding this, we would know what was said. But what happens uh, is we hear that he draws with his finger, he writes with his finger. My mind immediately goes to the Ten Commandments that list this as a law that were written by the very finger of God. And here we see the very finger of God, again, writing in the dirt. Do we not see people who are using the law in order to rebel and attack the one who is the very lawgiver? They're they're misusing the law that he wrote in order to attack him. He is the one who gave this law. He is the one that wrote it. I, I think of also... Uh, just in, in my mind as I'm refer- thinking of that story of the, the image of the coin where he says whose image is on this coin. And I, I think of this, this woman who is created in the image of God as the creator just kind of draws in the dirt from which we are made. And I think of how misusing people is so misusing the very image of God. Whose image is this? But the very fact that Jesus writes takes all the attention away from her and puts it on him. And you see what happens is all these accusing gazes at this woman are now drawn away from her and looking towards Jesus, the one who takes all our accusations, all our sins on himself. He originally ignores, but they continue to question him. So he responds, let you without sin be the first to throw the stone. He's agreed this is sin. He's agreed it is um, in, in the law worthy of this condemnation, but he puts a limit on it. If you're without sin, you throw the first So is Jesus saying that no judgment can ever be passed unless it is done with someone without sin? We would be in a very difficult place. Our juries would never be picked. (laughs) We would never have anyone who could bring any charge against anyone, for we are all sinful, we are all guilty. Uh, One commentator says, By designating as the first ones who is without sin to throw the stones, Jesus faces them with the full and final seriousness of the law not so as to lay down conditions that would make all human administration of justice impossible, but in order to confront all who, ignoring their own sin, want to judge and condemn others without mercy, to confront such judges with what awaits them if the heavenly judge would one day judge them by the same standard. It is something that should make us (laughs) mindful of our own sinfulness. But again, not saying that there is never to be judgment. By mentioning who is to throw the first stone, what Jesus is doing is referring to the, law, the fullness of the law. Deuteronomy 17 um, gives the stipulations of how um, it was to take place. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who did it is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. 
the hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put the stone, put him to death. In other words, whoever is the witness, whoever is without sin, whoever can say they don't have malice in this, who don't have you know, accusations and a sinful way of approaching this, let them go ahead. I, I have trouble imagining a situation where two witnesses saw this, where there was not some sort of setup, where there wasn't some sort of manipulation, especially with the man not being there. There is something much beyond innocence in the accusers. They're not concerned with justice. So they go away one by one. I believe they not only recognize their guilt, their guilt in this very scenario where they are trying to use someone else to get Jesus, to kill Jesus. They're breaking the law in their use of the law. And if they knew the law, they also knew the full stipulation of the law. Where Exodus 23 says, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with many as to pervert justice. In Deuteronomy 19, 18-19, we also hear that malicious witnesses, those not just dishonest, I mean, someone who has malice in their witness, they are to be punished with the same punishment that they w- sought to give someone else. In other words, Jesus says, if you go ahead and you act as a witness in the case, you are also worthy of being stoned because the law condemns you as well. And so they go away one by one from the oldest to the youngest. The malicious witnesses leave. And there she is. Where do you see yourself in this story? You know, I, I, I think we read these stories and we, you know, obviously Jesus is the good guy, but we want to make ourselves the hero. So we kind of see ourselves in Jesus' place. Wouldn't we have been with Jesus? The way we read this story ought to be understanding that we stand condemned as well. Many of us read this and kind of think, well, I'm not as bad as that woman, thank God. And I, others of us read it and say, well, I'm not as bad as those Pharisees. I'm not judgmental like them. But the problem is all of us should stand and see, I am worthy of this condemnation. I am the woman in the midst. I'm the one who has sinned because the, the capital punishment in the Old Testament covers a wide range. This, this one sin is not being singled out. And Jesus goes on to say that if, if you lust in your heart, you are guilty of adultery. That if you are greedy, <laughs> you're worthy of theft. If you're, if you're angry enough with someone to kill them, you're worthy of murder. Don't think that we are not condemned by this very same law that condemns the Pharisees, that condemns this woman. We stand before the only one who can condemn, and we ourselves are guilty. Don't think you're any better off because God's providence has kept your sins from coming to full fruition. How many times has your lust not come to full fruition only because you're afraid? How many times has my greed not come to full fruition because the opportunity hasn't, or the timing hasn't worked out? 
How many times has your anger not come to fuller fruition only because you're pride and you think you're above all that? All of us have that same seed that comes when fully grown into a sin that is absolutely worthy of condemnation. We are guilty before Him. We deserve death. If not a capital punishment under the law, the eternal punishment of hell. For we also have rebelled against the lawgiver. We have turned from Him, and He alone is sinless, and I am guilty as I stand before Him. And we hear these words from the only one who can condemn, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus has taken the law, uh, in the words of Herman Ridabas, ripped, torn from its base, and has reestablished justice on the foundation of grace. Don't you see that? That's what we are to see. Is that, I mean, how this woman must have felt to realize I'm guilty and I'm forgiven, and now how she goes and lives after that. And that should be the, the, the view all of us have is I am guilty before him. He has taken my condemnation himself on the cross, and he has forgiven me, and now he tells me to go sin no more. So the life we live is going out to be sinless, not so that we can say, I obeyed the law and I'm better than anyone else, but so because we have been forgiven and we know grace. And out of that freedom and out of that grace, we joyfully follow him who has freed us, who has saved us, and who has taken our condemnation. We have a new obedience to the law, not just to follow the rules but to live for the one who took our sins upon himself. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that Christ stood in our place condemned. And because of that, he says, we are now not under condemnation. Lord, help us to see that in our life. And Lord, help us to go and sin no more. Help us to live a life of holiness, not based on self-righteousness and pride, but based on grace and obedience. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And you've been listening to a sermon from the preaching and teaching ministry of First Presbyterian Church, Covington, Tennessee. Our mission is to proclaim Christ's kingdom through word and deed. You can learn more about us and listen to other sermons at onepc-covington.org or join us for worship at 403 South Main Street, Covington, Tennessee.